Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. On Commons People this week, Boris Johnson battles coronavirus. Because if there's one thing I know about this Prime Minister, he's a fighter. When will the lockdown end? Rather than speculate about the future, I think we should focus very seriously on the here and now and the present. And Labour finally gets its new leader. It is the honour and the privilege of my life to be elected as leader of the Labour Party. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh. Paul is away, so joining me this week is Rachel Wearmouth. Hello. Hi, Rachel. Uh, we've got Ace HuffPost reporter Kate Forrester. Hello. Hey, Kate. Uh, and in a huge week for Labour, we're delighted to have the party's MP for Ilford North, Wes Streeting. Hello. Hi, Wes. How's uh, lockdown treating you? Uh, I'm about a, way, a week away from getting the clippers out. Um, <laughs> and uh, aside from my sort of daily state-sponsored or state-sanctioned exercise, uh, you know, I'm going just about as stir-crazy as everyone else. Well, on to more serious matters. Uh, The nation was shocked on Monday night with the news that Boris Johnson had been taken into intensive care as he continued to struggle with coronavirus. Happily, the Prime Minister's condition seems to be improving and he's now sitting up and engaging with medics. Dominic Raab is now essentially standing in for the PM. Let's have a listen to him. He's not just the Prime Minister, all of us in Cabinet. He's not just our boss. He's also a colleague... And he's also our friend. So all of our thoughts and prayers are with the Prime Minister at this time, with Carrie and with his whole family. And I'm confident he'll pull through. Because if there's one thing I know about this Prime Minister, he's a fighter. And he'll be back at the helm, leading us through this crisis in short order. Uh, Rachel, the news of the PM going into intensive care seemed to hit the nation hard. Um, why, Why do you think that is? I think there's, there's the obvious reasons, you know, this is our country's leader and he's intensive, in intensive care, which suggests that there's a, uh, you know, serious risk to his, his, his life. Um, and this is just a profound moment for any country to experience. I think for a lot of people, the, the prime minister's also just become sort of like the human face of the, of the disease. You know, if you don't know anybody who's been affected by it, all of a sudden um, someone you are very familiar with has been very affected by it. Um, I think there's a lot of alarming stories that it kind of coincided with, you know, sort of seeing this steady climb in the death rate. Um, there's a lot, we've had stories about people being pressured to sign, you know, sort of elderly people being pressured to sign do not resuscitate forms. Um, we've had, seen more and more stories of younger people being affected by the disease, healthcare workers being affected by the disease. So I think that kind of would have added to a sense of just alarm. I'd also think there's just a, a the way that they communicated it could have been so much better. Because I think when you think about the order in which things came, it sort of did just seem to hit everyone in the face because we had sort of, you know, the the statement from the the Queen on Sunday night. And I think people forget that 
you know, the Queen just doesn't just turn up and give a statement. She's, she's requested to do as much by the, the government of the day. And so we had that big sort of emotional address from her on Sunday night. Then we had news that the, the Prime Minister had gone into hospital. We were originally told it was as a precaution and he was still getting cabinet papers delivered to his bedside and that, you know, everything was kind of fine. And then on the Monday night, um, the first Secretary of State, who Boris Johnson has asked to stand in for him, he sort of gave his down and street briefing and then all of a sudden revealed that the last time he spoke to Boris Johnson was on Saturday. Um, and I think that kind of just, that was the moment when people started to panic that things were actually uh, a, a little bit worse than than was originally suggested. Um, so, so yeah, and then beyond that, I think there's the, the whole political vacuum that Boris Johnson's absence inevitably has 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 brought about you know Dominic Raab is the the first secretary of state but he's not the the prime minister he can't hire and fire anybody he can't um just unilaterally make any decisions that all has to be made um even more so now as as collectively as a as a cabinet and I just think people feel like almost nobody is in charge at this point because we have people like in the cabinet say uh, Michael Gove or uh, Matt Hancock, who also kind of see themselves perhaps as a as a deputy PM kind of figure, and we just I think a lot of people are wondering if there's a little bit of a power struggle going on, and just just wondering who's in charge. Yeah, and we know there are kind of um, differing opinions within the government on um, when to end the lockdown, how to end the lockdown, but we'll come on to that in a bit. Um, Wes, obviously a time to to put um, party tribalism aside, obviously. Um, do you have any concerns about what the PM's absence might mean at a time like this? I mean, well, first and foremost, we wish him a speedy recovery and we all want to see him back in his job. I mean, all I would say just on, on that note is that I think it's important that Boris Johnson comes back to work when he is fit and ready. And I, I'll be honest, I, I was worried about the extent to which he was presenting this sort of soldiering on image and the sort of the pictures from the Downing Street sofa, which I didn't really find very reassuring because I don't think I've ever looked Boris, seen Boris Johnson look so gaunt and unwell and, um, you know, on a human level, but also actually on a professional level, you don't want to see the Prime Minister struggling through. It's not good for his health and it's not good for the government. I think he, you know, he's not superhuman. He's just like everyone else. If he needs time to rest and recover, no one will judge him more harshly or for the worse for doing what anyone in that situation should do which is take time to rest to recover and then come back to work when he's ready I think in the meantime it is important that the government have clear lines of accountability and responsibility um, we do have a good civil service and system of government in the country um, but it is important that there is a clear person in charge that someone is running the show and that they are able to convene the cabinet in a normal way to make decisions. And also that decisions like um, public information, decision-making around the lockdown are not held up. I mean, I did see a line coming out of number 10. I think it was uh, more on background briefing rather than a sort of official uh, spokesperson statement. But it seemed to me that some of the noises coming out of number 10 were, we can't take a decision on when to end the lockdown or whether to extend because the prime minister's out of action. Well, I'm sorry, that that's the sort of area that sends the alarm bells ringing for me. There are decisions that need to be taken and government cannot rest on Boris Johnson's shoulders. We've got to, he's out of the way, he's where he should be, resting, recovering, and we want to see him back soon. But in the meantime, we do need proper government making the decisions in a timely way. 
Yeah, just just a quick one on, on that point that you made about Boris uh, soldiering on. Do you think someone should have told him, or maybe he's in a position where you know no one can tell him he's the prime minister at the end of the day? There's no one more senior. It's it's hard, isn't it? And you know, if the prime minister says I'm I'm going on, it's very hard to say no, you're not. I mean, who's going to do that for him? And um, you know, I really feel for his family as well. Obviously, his um, his fiance Carrie Simmons, she's been off. Um, with with the with the symptoms as well and is also um, uh, pregnant so just on a human level you know our hearts go out to to her and to his family as well but I I just think it's important that you know frankly if he is saying oh don't worry I can sit up now give me the red box I think someone does need to say you know you you can't keep on putting your health um, behind the job and actually having a, a sort of half you know, half prepared prime minister coming back to work probably isn't in the country's interest as as well as Boris Johnson's interests. Yeah, Kate, um, we sort of talked about the the what what's left and how the government's being run. Um, how do you think Dominic Raab's done so far? Um, I think on Monday night he was a bit kind of rabbit in the headlights, as everybody was, because I'm sure you know, as Rachel touched on, the news that the PM's in intensive care sort of encapsulates the whole like instability and and uncertainty of the whole situation um so I think he wasn't particularly reassuring on Monday night when he gave that statement he did look genuinely scared um but I think you know you can forgive him for that he's human obviously Boris Johnson is a colleague and he knows him well he was probably reeling from the news um since then I think he is a bit of a wooden performer in terms of delivering press conferences and media appearances and things. Um, And I think that has shown through. He's not the most charming man in the world, I don't think. Even people close to him have said that. But um, I believe friends of his think that his strength is in attention to detail and things like that. Um, He's a good person to be looking at strategy, unpicking details, unpicking all the sort of the the cogs if you like behind the government strategy um and i think the reports out of the um the covid committee were quite positive actually in his favor they did say that that he performed quite well so i don't think his media performances are the best but i think possibly behind the scenes he's held up over the past few days uh, I, I was just i was just going to say it's quite intriguing that, that dominic Raab is the person that the pm chose mm. uh, you know, he, he he specifically didn't pick Michael Gove and he didn't pick um, Priti Patel and he didn't pick um, Matt Hancock, even though they're probably potentially more experienced as ministers. Um, and the, but kind, they, those people kind of come with their own political tribe. And I think, you know, I guess he could he, he's picked Dominic Raab perhaps in some in some ways because he's, he's not an isolated figure, but he, he kind of stands alone a little bit more. But I also think there's. There's a question around how they're dealing with the, the the comms of this crisis altogether. I kind of feel very often that they're treating it like a political crisis rather than a crisis that is facing the government and facing the UK. So you, they're almost have to be have to be kind of dragged into um, revealing information or revealing things that should just be they should offer up and that are just public information. Because um, I think that can kind of add, the way they've dealt with a, a few things so far, have added to alarm rather than made it easier for people. Yeah, Wes, you look like you might want to come in on that. Yeah, I, I do agree about that. And I think that was that was fairly evident, uh, especially early on 
in the um, coronavirus pandemic, um, the way in which journalists were being briefed selectively and so on. I think that that has evolved a lot and moved on positively. And certainly, you know, for us as the opposition, it's a it's it's a tricky balancing act at the moment because in this pandemic, the government's success or failure is literally a matter of life and death. And I do think there are lots of big questions to be asked about the level of preparedness and mistakes that have been made. But I think lots of those issues need to wait until this is over. Uh, and I do think there'll probably need to be some kind of inquiry um, to, to scrutinise properly. Um, but we don't want to do anything now that holds up the, the really urgent immediate decisions that need to be made. So we're trying to ask the right questions, highlight problems, uh, offer solutions and to work with the government as best we can. Yeah, well, well sorry. sorry I... <laughs> I was just, do you think there are, there are times when you've seen the government kind of hide behind the experts when they could, act, they could actually just be more upfront about the fact that they're making decisions not just the experts. I think it's important that there is a distinction and that people understand where decisions are coming from and, and what's guiding the decisions. Because, you know, first and foremost, this is a public health crisis. But, you know, layered beneath it is a, an economic crisis, um, a social crisis, industrial crises that begin to, to spring up as, the, as, 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 as things are biting. And I think it's important that we're understanding how and why the government is making decisions. Uh, so that we can distinguish between the, the, those decisions that are guided simply by science and others that are taking into account other factors. Because um, there are some compromises and choices and trade-offs, and the government needs to be honest about those. Um, just a final one on this. Um, Labour has been quite constructive, a con- kind of constructive opposition so far, uh, and of course on this issue of Boris Johnson, but we've seen some of that, a little bit of that old nastiness within a minority of the party ranks rear its head this week. The, the Labour mayor of Hina in Derbyshire, Sheila Oakes, has been kicked out of the party for saying Johnson deserves to be in intensive care. I mean, what, what what's going on with this? Where's, how, how do we get past this? And why do you think people kind of say these sort of things, really? Yeah, you've got to wonder, haven't you? I thought the, the the welcome thing in that case you mentioned was that action was taken so swiftly by the party. Um, that that does seem to me to be already a sea change in how we're responding to these sorts of things. Um, uh, sort of, I know it starts to move us on to sort of the, the, the Labour news and what's going on in our party at the moment. But clearly, one of the key things that Keir Starmer's leadership has to bring is a change of culture in the Labour Party. I think he's already signalled very clearly, both in terms of his public statements um, since being elected leader, but also in terms of his correspondence to MPs and our first parliamentary Labour Party meeting, that he does have a different expectation and does want to see a change of direction. Yeah, we'll we'll come on to talking about uh, Labour in more detail in a bit, but um, talking about big decisions and and what's going on in the government, uh, Dominic Raab is chairing his first coronavirus COBRA meeting today uh, with an extension of the lockdown expected in the coming days as the UK approaches the peak of the epidemic. Wales has already gone ahead and announced it would extend the extraordinary measures, and it seems a formality that the whole UK will will now follow. Meanwhile, the government has admitted it could have been sharper on testing for the virus. Here are Chief Scientific Officer Sir Patrick Valence and Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty discussing Germany's comparative success. Uh, you're right, the German curve looks as though it's lower at the moment, and that is important. 
And I don't have a clear answer for you to exactly what it is, uh, the reason for that. And there are obviously two things that one will look at in terms of any, any response to any outbreak. One is the virus itself, and the other is the society into which that virus comes. And there are things to do with demographics, there are things to do with the way um, systems are organised, and of course there may be differences in the way certain responses have been taken. And we don't know, but we're in regular contact with the other countries again. Uh, Rachel, we're not getting out of this lockdown for a while, are we? Uh, the short answer to that is no, <laughs> definitely not. Um, as you sort of took us through there, the, the Welsh government is saying as much. The um, sorry, the Welsh Assembly is saying as much, and the Scottish government is saying as much. Um, we were supposed to look at this in, in three week intervals, um, but if you if you look at where we are now, the disease is is still peaking. Um, we've got sort of more than nine hundred deaths yesterday, um, and I think I think. We just there doesn't seem to be an end in sight in in the in certainly not in the next three weeks month we're not going to find out when it's going to end i don't think um and i, I know that keir Starmer has kind of repeatedly called for for an exit strategy to be published but um the sort of response to this in the number 10 briefing today was that um there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes in terms of how how white how intensively whitehall is looking at that issue but um they're, they're kind of the, the message that you got was that they don't think it's helpful to start being more upfront about how that is happening because um, they, they don't want people to disobey the advice. Basically, they want them to to bear down on the on the lockdown for as long as possible. Yeah, uh, Wes, case as as Rachel said, case called for for the government to publish an exit strategy without really saying what Labour would do. Um, how do you think we get out of this? Is it testing? Is it something else? Well, I think Keir's been very clear about wanting a degree of preparedness um, in terms of being able to roll out um, the testing, not just in terms of um, testing of people who um, may be COVID symptomatic so that we can get frontline workers back to work as quickly as possible, but um, also this this issue of the, the antibody uh, test to look at people who have got, who've gone through it and come through the other side so are no longer um, at risk. Um, it, it's, it's important we're, we're ready to, to make sure that people are able to access that as quickly as possible. I, I think beyond that, I, I think it's a reasonable question to ask. Um, what is the level of preparedness um, to come out the other side? Um, what thinking is taking place to, to judge? And I think this is one of the questions we've got really is, is about, you know, ha what criteria will the government use to judge when we can start easing off um, the restrictions? Um, at what point will it be OK to say to people that we can move on? Um, and I think he's posing those questions in a constructive way rather than a demanding way. Clearly, we, we don't want people to start thinking, well, the weather's nice, it's Easter weekend and, you know, the exit's on the way. So let's all um, rush outside. Absolutely not. We, we're absolutely with the government in reinforcing those key public health messages. Um, but I think it's that reassurance of, of how we're going to come out the other side. And there will also start to be some pretty pressing questions um, once we're through this pandemic about the aftermath. And what comes next? Because it's quite right the government's taking extraordinary measures to bail out people, to help out businesses, to keep our public services going in extraordinary circumstances. That is all coming at a significant cost. And at some point, we need to work out how we build the recovery from this. And in a way, learning on the lessons from the financial crisis of building back the recovery in a way that doesn't see um, some of the poorest and less well-off people carrying as big a burden as, frankly, they did last time. 
Yeah, sorry, Rachel, I just wanted to bring Kate in. Um, how do you think the lockdowns have uh, been handled so far? Do you think there's anything we could learn from the first three weeks that we could do better in the next three? Um, that's a really hard question, isn't it? <laughs> um, I mean, I think some people would say that the government was slow to introduce the measures that it did. Others would say that you can only keep people compliant with such extreme measures for so long. So maybe they should have held off. Um, I don't think there is any way to give a right answer to that at this stage because we just don't know. Um, I think Wes is right in that they do need to be open and honest about the criteria that they're using to sort of make their decisions on this. Um, and I'm told that a lot of the um, a lot of the information that's informing the next stage of the decision is focusing around um, the impact on uh, school children and families with children. So I wonder whether they're thinking that schools going back might be the first step in easing it um, because there's a suggestion that school closures have had a minimal impact on on the figures um, in terms of NHS pressure. Um, so I would guess that if they do begin to ease it, then that would be the first thing that they do. Um, economy wise, I think the rule book's been ripped up, hasn't it? Like normal, normal rules don't apply here. But I do think um, the Chancellor's billions and billions pounds worth of, um, of uh, emergency funding that he's that he's offering to businesses to keep them afloat that has already seen some teething problems I think the Times reported um, today uh, that um, several businesses have tried to apply for these loans and obviously it's still got to go through due financial process so there's a huge backlog with some banks saying it will take months and months for businesses to be able to access this cash by which time a lot of them will have gone under anyway um, charities as well loads of them I think have just accepted that they're going to fold as a result of this um, the example off the top of my head is hospices they said they needed 200 million pounds per quarter to stay afloat they're getting 200 million pounds as, as a blanket figure which for particularly for the smaller ones that's that's not going to sustain them so I think yeah normal rules don't apply here and not every business and not every charity is is going to survive this that's that's already accepted I think unfortunately I was just going to say I remember um professor it was good going back to sort of when when the lockdown might ease um professor Neil Ferguson one of the sort of top scientists advising the government at the minute had kind of said that um the decisions made on testing and tracing when the lockdown is lifted will just will be absolutely crucial in kind of protecting us from that second peak that we might see. And I, I, I get the impression at the minute that they're, they're no closer to knowing what those decisions look like. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's no end in sight. Uh, just moving on, it's been a seismic week for Labour with Keir Starmer taking over as party leader after securing a whopping 56% of the votes in the first round. And he's wasted no time in clearing out the Corbynistas from the shadow cabinet and promoting a wave of new talent including the likes of Annalise Dodds to Shadow Chancellor and Nick Thomas-Simmons to Shadow Home Secretary. Let's hear a bit of Starmer's acceptance speech. This is my pledge to the British people. I will do my utmost to guide us through these difficult times, to serve all of our communities and to strive for the good of our country. I will lead this great party into a new era with confidence and with hope so that when the time comes, we can serve our country again in government. Can I come to you, Wes? Uh, you pleased? I am very pleased. I think this is a great result for the Labour Party. 
is a great result for the country. Um, I, I think that people want there to be an effective opposition and at the next election, I want Labour to be a party with a leadership and an offer that people have confidence in and can vote for so that we have a change of government. Ultimately, however great we think particular policies are or pledges are, and I'm sure there will be lots of things we've been talking about in the last few years that, that will continue to be big themes for Labour in terms of tackling uh, injustice and poverty and inequality. Um, those policies aren't radical and have zero impact unless they're able to be delivered by uh, a Labour government. Um, I I'm really excited, actually, for the first time in a long time. Um, I feel that Keir is already sticking true to what he said about um, recognising talents from across the Labour Party. I think his shadow cabinet's fantastic. And I recognise that for some of the, you know, when people are looking at some of those names, and you mentioned uh, Annalisa and, and Nick, um, they may not be household names at the moment up and down the country, but I think um, as people see them, and they will because of the nature of those roles being so high profile, I think they will notice a real difference in the tone, in the approach, um, and I think they are really big talents. Um, I'm really, I'm really pleased, really pleased. What, what do you think will be that difference in tone? Whereas how do you think this new shadow cabinet will act and look and sound different to, to the old shadow cabinet? And was was there, a, do you think there was a concerted attempt from Keir Starmer to, to actually put people in who, who no one actually knows to try and turn a, a page on the on the past few years? Well, I don't know if he was if he was just going for um, unknowns, he certainly wouldn't have put Ed Miliband in the shadow cabinet. Um uh, you know, he's obviously one of the best known Labour backbenchers from the last um, few years. Um, I think he has just um, sought to do exactly what he said. He's looked at the Labour Party, thought about who needs to be in the top team and thought, how do I put together a team that represents the political diversity of the Labour Party, the diversity of the country we represent and can speak for every part of the country? And when you look at the shadow cabinet in those terms, um, in terms of, you know, their experience, um, their, their sort of political outlook and where they're from in the country and where they represent. I think it's a really, really good top team. I hope that the Labour Party will um, look and feel more inclusive. Um, the, the culture, as I mentioned already, of the Labour Party will improve dramatically. And that when we're talking about our values and our policies, we're doing so in a way that really resonates with people. Um, I, I always say that I, I think the, the challenge for the Labour Party under any leader and at any election is that most of the time people know that the Labour Party's heart is in the right place. They just want to know our head is in the right place too. And every time we lose an election, it's because they've had concerns about the head. I have to say, particularly on issues like anti-Semitism at the last election, some people questioned whether we had a heart too. Um, but I think the response to Keir's election has been fantastic. When you look at the people cheering it, I mean, it's not just sort of people like me saying, who've been critical of Jeremy, um, saying, great, fresh start, new broom, I'm really excited. You've got people like Laura Parker, who used to head up Momentum. Obviously, his rivals in the leadership contest, Lisa Nandy and Rebecca Long-Bailey, are there in the top team too. So I think he is bringing people together. And already, um, obviously, we're not together at the moment, but certainly having spoken to Labour colleagues in, in recent days, people are really excited. Yeah, Rachel, you've been covering kind of Starmer's first week. How, how do you think it's gone? Um, 
I think absolutely as well as as everyone was expecting, really. Um, I think it's it's significant. One of the first things he did was to try and sort out the the party's anti-Semitism problem. Um, uh, he had a, a meeting very early on with um, some some leaders of the Jewish community that was praised by the board of deputies. Um, and I think one one of the significant moments that we we touched on a little bit earlier was this Sheila Oaks, the the mayor of Hina, who'd kind of um, said that that Boris Johnson completely deserves this um, coronavirus. Um, I think it was very significant that, that Starmer came down on that so hard and so quickly. You know, she was straight out, the, you know, whip removed straight away. I think the message that he's wanting to send is that no more will Labour be seen as, as, and it had started to be seen as the nasty party. You know, that yeah, I think he very much wants to end that. I think that, that, I think that would extend that to sort of how people were sacked as well. You know, when you looked at sort of, the things that, that Barry Gardner and Richard Bergen and everybody said, he said they had a very nice phone call with Keir and it was very polite and, and things were moving on. I think a lot of people are really encouraged by the people he's picked in the uh, shadow cabinet as well. Um, a lot of people don't pick up on the fact that it looks like a very unionist cabinet. You know, your, your shadow home secretary is Welsh. Um, Annalise Dodds is an, an Aberdonian. She's Scottish. And there's a lot of smart northern women in the um, shadow cabinet as well. A lot of um, a lot of the women that he's picked for these top roles are in very interesting and strategic roles as well. When you think about, you know, Lisa Nandy is going to be taking on Dominic Raab across the dispatch box. You know, Rachel Reeves is going to be taking on Michael Gove. You know, there's a lot of people, there's a lot to get um, journalists, commentators excited about sort of the intellect, the new intellectual depth that the Labour Party could have. I think it was also interesting that he didn't promote people like um, Hilary Benn and Yvette Cooper. He's kept them in these kind of, high profile roles as the um, chairs of select committees so he can show that um, the party's got a bit of breadth and depth as well. I think the one thing that sort of a lot of people had a question mark over was this promotion again of Ed Miliband because I think that one of the big criticisms that that Kia had during the um, leadership campaign was that he's Miliband Mark II and I just wonder if that one of the first decisions he's made is to bring back Miliband if that might come back to bite him and that criticism might stick so I think he's got to do he's got a lot more work to do to show that he's that this is a new party. Yeah I mean just just on the on that I mean it's interesting um the way you couch that Rachel because you're, you're right I mean that that was the obvious risk of bringing Ed Miliband back and yet Keir chose to do it and you know, he's got a very, I mean, as well as being smart himself, he's got a very smart and savvy political operation around him. And I saw that as a sign of self-confidence, actually. They knew exactly, you know, what the, you know, what the sort of word on the street would be um, and, you know, how it would be seen in the Westminster village. And he's just gone, well, no, I want him in that job. This is what I want him to be doing. And um, I mean, clearly, particularly on the climate change agenda, which is still, you know, obviously we're all talking about coronavirus moment. It's still the single, single biggest issue facing humanity. Um, Ed has been doing a lot on that on the back benches in the last few years, so I think will be a really powerful voice. And one of the challenges the opposition is going to have in the in you know between now and the next general election is is that unlike every parliament that I've ever been on in since 2015, the numbers in parliament are not close. You are not going to be reporting on any more knife edge votes. There are going to be no more clever backbench Labour amendments that get everyone very excited. No more Hillary Benn acts and stuff like that. So. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think one of the advantages of Ed is that he does have a media cut through as well. So as well as bringing through fresh faces, 
you've got someone there who can cut straight through and talk to people. And, you know, when you think about other, you know, sort of successful politicians in the past, like William Hay, you know, he had a very, very successful frontline uh, political career and reinvention when he came back. And, and I think we'll see the same with Ed, actually. Yeah, Kate, I mean, how difficult how difficult is it for Keir to begin his leadership at a time like this? Um, I mean, I think it's a bit of a mixed bag um, because normally you would expect a new party leader, especially a new Labour leader, given the, you know, the wrangling that's happened the last few years. Um, you'd expect them to have a bit of free reign in terms of column inches. You know, everybody would want to report on what they were doing. Everybody wants to unpick their new ideas. You know, it's a fresh face. It's a fresh approach. Everybody wants to cover it. In this scenario, less. There's much less. Um, And I think that's difficult for him. I think it's difficult to sort of gather your new shadow cabinet and instill some discipline and some direction in your new shadow cabinet via Zoom. (laughs) It's... (laughs) And I think there's a lot of rebuilding to do within the PLP. I'm sure you would agree, Wes, in terms of, you know, bringing everybody back together with a a common purpose. And again, that's quite difficult when you're not there, when you can't speak to people face to face. Um, Having said that, I think he's done, he has done very well. Um, I thought his his first appearance on Mar was good. Um, I think that format really works for him. He looked prime ministerial. Um, you know, he had, he was very measured, he was very calm. Um, I think he was, he made some really sensible points. Um, so I think this is an opportunity for him, you know, to really show what he's made of. He's walked into the biggest crisis that many of us have ever faced in our life. And he's straight in at the deep end. He has to look like a leader of the opposition. He has to look like a prime minister. You know, you don't, you don't get the time off. You're still every hour you spend as leader of the opposition you are auditioning for the top job and this is the biggest scrutiny that he'll ever face so yes it is a challenge for him um but I think as Rachel touched on his work so far I think he's done pretty well yeah I was going to say like Kate's Kate's right to say there's like a sort of new seriousness about the Labour Party but I was wondering what Wes thought about kind of still sorting out some of the problems that Labour has in its own shop I mean does it need it does the party need a new general secretary you know what's he what does he need to do now to sort out some of the problems that remain I mean I think there is a sort of root and branch reform needed of the party itself and uh, you know I think wherever you sit ideologically in the Labour Party candidates who went through the 2019 general election will tell you it was not a professional experience in terms of some of the things that went wrong that the public, um, you know, won't see kind of on the news bulletins, but we really noticed as candidates. So things like, you know, we get an election address that can go to every voter and um, they normally come out in a couple of phases and most of them landed after postal votes had gone out to voters. So a lot of candidates had missed their chance to talk to voters properly before they'd cast their votes. Um, and there were other problems with sort of Labour's operation, as well as, you know, the political criticisms that you've heard me make um, in the last few years. There were there were those sorts of problems as well, um, which is a shame because actually, um, as well as having brilliant candidates at the last election um, who lost, including some brilliant MPs who lost their seats, 
there are brilliant Labour Party staff, actually, um, at every level of the party and from different wings of the party, actually. So I'm, I'm sure that he'll want to look at all of those things with a fresh pair of eyes. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that, you know, he'll want to make sure that um, there's a place for everyone, actually. You know, if you I think the message he sent with his shadow cabinet reshuffle is that if you're I think competence really matters to Keir. Um, he wants to build a big tent. He showed that through his leadership campaign and that was reflected in the result. Um, so I, I can't imagine that there will be sort of ideologically motivated um, sort of staffing decisions in the way that, frankly, we've seen in the recent past. Um, but there will be a, a, a high bath when it comes to competence. And, and he'll have plenty of talented people from right across the party uh, who, who really want to muck in and help him succeed. I was just also going to ask as well, I mean... It- it, it is to, to some people perhaps a, a, a big tent um, new shadow cabinet, but there was a lot of names in there that I think some people expected to see. You know, I mean, no Jess Phillips, for example. You know, um, no Stella Creasy. Were there enough new Labour people in there? Enough enough people who you would kind of consider to be Blairite. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how Jess and Stella would feel about being called Blairite. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm with Keir on this, in that we, I, I can't wait to just be able to drop some of these ridiculous labels. Um, uh, I mean, God, but if it's after media attention, you know, I mean, Jess. Yeah, I, I think. I don't know. I, I I do look at the shadow cabinet, and I see a sort of a good political breadth there across the party. Um, and I'm sure that when it comes to announcing the rest of the front bench, um, he'll, he'll see that political diversity uh, and every other form of diversity reflected there too. Um, he, I, I hope I won't get in trouble very early of my new leader for talking out of school, but at the first meeting we had of the Parliamentary Labour Party this week, Keir was talking about one PLP, one party, um, you know, one team. And I think that is going to be the mantra. He is working really hard to try and build uh, a new team spirit in the Labour Party. And clearly that 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 is going to take time. Um, you know, there are, you know, we've, we've all had so many rounds in the last few years and you, you don't just sort of move on quickly from that kind of division. But, you know, it will be a process of, of rebuilding. I mean, I, I, I was watching a Fabian Society um, Zoom event last night um, with again with a, a sort of diverse panel from across the party and listening to some of the stuff that Owen Jones was saying actually as a sort of um a Corbyn cheerleader for for the last sort of four or five years and, and actually I agreed with much of what he said and I think we're all of us particularly those of us frankly you know myself included who've um you know been very involved in some of the internal battles I think we've all got a responsibility through our own actions and our own behavior to help build that culture but you know Keir is setting the tone and I think we, we've got to we've got to follow follow his lead on this. Um, how did the PLP meeting work? It was like uh, two hundred <laughs> of you in a in a Zoom call. I have to say, I mean, it was pure it was comedy value. Every, <laughs> every every Zoom meeting provides a new level of comedy value, and there are like different categories of people. You've got the sort of the people who've clearly spent a lot of time and effort with professional setup and lighting to look their best. <laughs> You've got the, um, I'm in the middle of the gardening and I've just stopped to have a chat with you all kind of. And then you've got the sort of, you know, you can see right into their nostrils. Is this on kind of? I mean, <laughs> I'm sure everyone who's been involved in some sort of work related Zoom meeting or Zooming with their family will empathise. But there was a lot of, there were a lot of, I'll tell you what was different about the Zoom call beyond the fact that we were all online rather than in committee room 14 in the House of Commons. 
there were just so many smiling faces. It's so unusual, a parliamentary Labour Party. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen so many smiling faces at a parliamentary Labour Party meeting because when I was first elected in 2015, we just lost an election that many people had hoped to win and everyone was really miserable. And it's like we've been miserable ever since. And this is the first time I've seen so many smiling faces. Did Jeremy and John dial in? Um, I can't I can't remember, actually. Um, I think they, from memory, I think they did. Um uh, yeah, and I, I, you know, and uh, I, 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 you know, I get the sense from sort of what Jeremy has said and sort of what John said and just the way that, you know, we're all participating in sort of, you know, discussions via WhatsApp and things like that, you know, they're, 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 they're still there. They're not they're not going away. But they I think, you know, that they've also been setting a constructive tone. And, you know, as as one of their critics in the last few years, um, you know, let me acknowledge that in the in the new spirit of one party and one team. <laughs> it's all uh, uh, campfires and hugs, um, which is a good come time to. In, yeah, come by, oh, that's it. It's a good time to introduce some competition to the podcast. It's time for the quiz. Uh, and this week's is all about deputy prime ministers. Um, so just, just pipe up if you know the answer, basically. Um, no, no buzzers or anything. Um, question number one Who was Britain's first deputy prime minister? Oh. Was it was it Michael Heseltine? No. Herbert Morrison? No. Uh, hard pass. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Oh, oh it's just his heart. No, you, you're getting closer in terms of um, era, or you were. I hope my answer's actually correct on this. <laughs> 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 it's Clement Attlee in the wartime oh, coalition. Of course, oh, I'm yeah. so embarrassed, I should have known that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm tempted to give you a minus point as a Labour MP. Though, <laughs> <laughs> um, John Prescott was Tony Blair's deputy PM, but what was his other job in the cabinet? The Department for Environment, Transport and the Regions initially. Yes, correct. Where's point for you? Where's his ahead? So uh, final question, we can only uh, peg Wes back to a draw now. Um, this is quite a hard one. Uh, the deputy PM position is not recognised in UK law, so post holders must be given an additional title to ensure they accrue the same legal status and salary as a cabinet minister. So what was Nick Clegg's additional title? Oh, that is hard. Oh, I'm trying to remember this. Uh, oh. It wasn't the first Secretary of State, because that was William Hague. It was... Um, um, Lord Lord Privy Seal or something like that, or it was Lord something, wasn't it? Oh, Lord President of the Council. Oh, well done, Wes. Oh Fantastic. my God, I can't believe you got that. Yeah, where did well you done. get that from? The recesses of your mind. I'm such a I'm such a geek, and now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Wes, uh, well, Lord President of the Council is, is technically the minister who presides over meetings of the Privy Council, um, but it's just a ceremonial title. But um, Wes, congratulations, you've stormed to a 2 nil nil victory in the quiz, well done. Do I, do I win some toilet roll or something like that? Uh, maybe I'll buy you a pint when we're back in Westminster or something oh, like that. Wait. Oh. <laughs> you know what, I mean, that, one of the other stupid things I did before this pandemic hit was I gave up alcohol for Lent. Oh, oh no! Yeah. 
Big mistake. Not long ago. <laughs> yeah. Nearly there, nearly there. Yeah, have you stocked up on supplies for the, for the weekend there? Your, your essential trip to the shops too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> in Tesco loading my trolley with these. <laughs> Right, on that note, um, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. Um, we're going to take a week off next week. Uh, in the meantime, we'll just leave you with New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern with a message for kids struggling with the lockdown. Yes, you'll be pleased to know um, that we do consider both the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny to be essential workers. Um, but as you can imagine at this time, of course, they're going to be um, potentially quite busy at home with, with, their, with their family as well and their own bunnies. And so um, I say to the children of New Zealand, if the Easter Bunny doesn't make it to your household, um, then uh, we have to understand that it's a bit difficult at the moment for the bunny to perhaps get everywhere. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.